Greetings and welcome back to the Kogo Pod. Today's talk is about political culture and participation in Persia. We'll be diving into political socialization, elite recruitment, and interest articulation and aggregation in Iran. So, right. Where do we start discussing the political culture of this complicated and challenging theocracy? Maybe I should have thought about that before I started recording. Um, well, maybe we should start here. Persians are prideful and not without reason. Persia has a rich and illustrious history. And unlike many of its Arab neighbors, they survive the Ottoman Empire and the age of European imperialism. So Persians have pride. But that pride, like all things Persian, is paradoxical and vexing. And part of what I hope to do today is to dive into some of the complications of Persian political culture and sort of navigate some of these paradoxes. So Iran survived the age of imperialism as a sovereign state, but not without foreign meddling. In the previous lecture, I discussed the role of Russia and Britain in the early 20th century, just as an example, and of course, the role of the United States, in particular from 1953 to 1979, when they maintained the puppetry of the last Shah of Iran. And though in many ways Iranians see the West as toxic, many Iranians, particularly educated Iranians, tend to like to compare themselves with dominant Western countries rather than so-called third world nations. This is a testament to the pride that the Iranian people have. Iranians see themselves as global leaders, and in many ways they are, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. But because of the problematic history of Persia, sovereignty is a really touchy issue for Iranians. Iranians are nationalistic. They take pride in the glories of ancient Persia, and they see themselves as the vanguard of the Islamic world's struggle against Western domination. And if there's one thing that Westerners know about Iran is that, by some reliable accounts, Iranians are pursuing nuclear weapons. And the nuclear issue is, in part, an issue of patriotism. Right? So, like, to be a global leader, to be able to exert power on the global stage, might be aided by having nuclear weapons. Yeah? And the ways in which Iranians celebrate the occupation of the U.S. Embassy and the seizure of 52 hostages for 444 days, the celebration of that crime against humanity has something to do with the pride that is at the heart of Iranian political culture. You see, because that U.S. embassy was and still is considered the epicenter of Western colonial conspiracies, because it was the epicenter of Western colonial conspiracies for a generation in Iran, right? So there's no fruit in denying that. But the way that that occupation is remembered in Iran says something about Iranian political culture. And one thing it says, 
about Iranian political culture is at the center of this political culture is a vast and in many ways twisted array of conspiracy theories. Now, some of these conspiracy theories are not entirely unfounded, right? The British and the Russians did conspire to keep the Germans out and thus in some ways to cripple the Iranian economy in the 1930s and 40s. The Americans and the British did conspire to oust Mohammad Mosaddegh and to install and maintain the Shah for 26 years. And the Americans and the Russians and the Israelis did conspire to create the Iraq-Iran war, which was the great patriotic war of the new Islamic Republic. And so Iranians have been irrefutably subject to a vast array of conspiracies. Yeah. By the way, I, I would say so has Russia, and Russians, like Iranians, share this fetish for political conspiracy. But if we want to understand Iranian political culture, which of course is our aim here, we do have to appreciate that the Iranian propensity for conspiracy is not just directed towards foreigners and foreign conspiracies. Iranians believe that their own government and their own ulema conspire not just with each other, but against each other to capture and in some cases dominate the hearts and minds of Iranian people. Iranian people don't trust their government. Many Iranian people don't trust the ulema. Nobody trusts the Iranian media. Iranians tend to believe that it's all part of like a cabal of sorts, that it's all part of a grand conspiracy. So while many, if not most, Iranians are subject to the authority of various strong political and cultural institutions, they are not condemned to trust the very institutions that rule over them. And it is in part, perhaps, because of some of this distrust that in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution, we've seen a dramatic increase in political participation in Iran. And this increased political participation needs to be harnessed. Now, a lot of people who opposed the revolution and the people who opposed the Khomeini regime in the first decade after the revolution, they emigrated. And they chose to emigrate rather than to become subjects to a theocracy that they had no faith in. Yeah, and there's a whole other lecture to be given about the diasporic political culture in places like Los Angeles and Toronto. But that's not the purview of this particular discussion. However, I do feel obliged to say at the outset that political culture in Iran is always in motion. It's constantly changing. And one of the big changes came in response to what was perceived to be a fraudulent election in 2009, ushering in the so-called green movement in Iran. So political participation in Iran is always changing, and the last decade has been fascinating vis-a-vis -vis Iranian political culture. 
And one of the reasons it's fascinating is because in the absence of true political parties, which is something we'll talk about in a later lecture, Iran doesn't have like centralized, programmatic, and disciplined political parties. Yeah. True political parties. So in the absence of true political parties, and in the presence of constant factionalism, we see a tendency towards charismatic, populist, nationalist leaders. In mind, I have Khomeini, Khatami, Ahmadinejad. Yeah. And these people, these elite leaders in Iran, they thrive on conflict, as populist, nationalist leaders do. And they benefit from and they contribute to a conflictual political culture, pitting the collective against the individual interests, the theocratic versus the secular interests, right? the interests of those who are more educated versus those who are less educated, the rural versus urban interests, and then the Persian interests versus the interests of the other 35% of Iranian people. All of which is to say, if we want to begin to understand Iranian political culture, perhaps we ought to start by talking about Iranian political cultures, plural, then things become a lot more interesting. And you know, also interesting is when we put some fuel to the fire, so to speak, which is to say talking about oil and political culture in Iran. As we know, Iran is the top five oil producer. What we might not know is that Iranians expect the state to provide a safety net and to alleviate the wealth gap in Iran. Persian people expect what British people get. They expect a robust safety net from cradle to grave. They expect that they will be able to enjoy their share of the oil wealth. And indeed, half of Iranians get some kind of subsidy from the government, which the government gets from selling oil on the global market. And all Iranians get insanely cheap gas to put in their car which is in itself a substantial subsidy in a country lacking transportation infrastructure. But in considering how oil affects political culture in Iran, we would be remiss to not take a moment to explore how when the West, and in particular the U.S., imposes sanctions on Iran and demand a global boycott of Iranian oil, that directly and profoundly negatively affects the average Iranian citizen because that Iranian citizen can no longer enjoy the subsidies that were sustaining them. And of course, that is the goal of these sanctions, right? The goal of the sanctions is to punish Iranian people so much that they rise up against their government. The sanctioned effort is a not-so-subtle push towards regime change. And this fuels Iranian political culture. But also fueling this culture, as I continue with these pathetic puns here, and a lot of unnecessary and unintended alliteration I've noticed, but that's besides the point. Not enough oil flows to the Iranian people. 
Iran suffers from endemic corruption, which undermines the legitimacy of the regime. Like, where's the oil money going? That's what Iranians want to know. Most Iranians believe, and not without reason, that with the amount of oil that they have, and the global price and demand for oil, that they should be living like British or French or German people. Why aren't they? Because a lot of people in the regime are siphoning it off. As happens, as we see in Russia, as we see in Nigeria, this is all part of that so-called oil curse. One thing that's interesting about Iranian political culture, and Laura Secor writes about this tendency in her book, Children of Paradise, this opposition that a lot of Iranians have to conspicuous consumption, it's like politically incorrect in certain regions and certain neighborhoods in Iran to, you know, wear Prada purses, carry around a Gucci bag, you know, wear $300 shoes. Because where'd you get that money, right? <laughs> how, how did you manage to do that? And so that sort of lack of modesty is an affront to the public conscience. I think that's sort of like an interesting read on Iranian political culture. But if we really want to get an accurate read on Iranian political culture, we have to look at the ways in which Iranian political culture is fostered by heavy-handed political socialization processes. So with those introductory remarks on political culture kind of behind us, but very much in mind, let's talk about political socialization in Iran. We'll talk about the education system, the university system, the military, the media, the mosque, of course, and so on. So in discussing Iranian political socialization, I think it's clear we have to start here, right? The Iranian theocratic regime has state-controlled institutions which transmit the political values and the political norms of the country, and the government kind of frames the political discourse. Now, this isn't unique to the revolutionary regime in Iran. This was true in the Pahlavi monarchy also. The Pahlavi monarchy sought to create unity in a heterogeneous population by creating a modern, industrial, nationalist, classless, and in some ways, Western society. Right, The white revolution as an example of this. Shah Reza Khan as an example of this. But the Islamic Revolution changed the content of the political discourse, and they challenged perceptions of national unity. The Islamic Revolution really ignored and continues to ignore the pluralistic nature of Iran. You know, the goal is to create national unity and to mask political, ethnic, and socioeconomic cleavages. Again, I remind you that only two-thirds of Iranians are Persians. You have 16% Azerbaijanis, 7% Kurds, 6% Lurs, 2% Arabs. It's a diverse country. And one of the goals of the autocratic theocracy of Iran is to snuff out that diversity, to create a homogenous state, 
to create a nation state out of a country with many nations. And this is not unlike what we see in Russia vis-a-vis Chechnya and Ossetia and Dagestan and Crimea, for that matter. And it's not unlike what we see in China with concern to the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Hong Kongers. You know, generally speaking, autocratic regimes aren't friends to diversity and multiculturalism. And that, my friends, is the understatement of the podcast, Let's Hope. So how do we create e pluribus unum, right? How do we create one out of many? Well, we start with the education system, right? The education system is arguably the primary means to promote homogeneity. It is quite possibly the principal agent of socialization. Indeed, the education system was the first institution to be Islamicized by the new regime. You know, when you go to school, you take religious studies classes. Every year you're taking classes on the Islamic Revolution. You have mandatory Farsi languages. You read textbooks about popular uprisings and thus erasing and distorting the role of secular forces. All textbooks used in Iranian schools are state-sanctioned, and all of them depict the state's image of the family, women, and what it means to be a good citizen in a theocratic regime. The textbooks paint the Pahlavi monarchy as fascistic and immoral. You know, when you go to school and you recite chants and poems, lots and lots of poems in Iranian education, that praise the greatness of the supreme leader and of the theocratic regime. And of course, you know, you probably can't go more than a couple days in an Iranian school without loud denunciations of Iraq and Israel as imperialists, and of course, the United States as the great Satan. You know, the great Satan who conspired against the greatness of Persia. The great Satan who was humiliated by the heroic Islamic Revolutionary Guards, right? This is sort of the message you get when you go to school in Iran. And then you go to university, and the Islamists clean the universities of counter-revolutionary elements. You know, they'd review the faculty, they'd review the curriculum, they'd send out the besieged militia, who I'll talk about in a second, to make sure that all classrooms and teachers were thoroughly in line with the revolutionary values, right? University campuses were the epicenter of the anti-Pahlavi sentiments, and the universities became the epicenter of anti-Islamic regime sentiments in the first couple years of the Islamic Republic. And thus, from 1980 to 87, during the Khomeini regime, a cultural revolution was launched to Islamify and consolidate the movement. So we have a cultural revolution in China from 1966 to 76, and a cultural revolution in Iran from 1980 to 87. And in this cultural revolution, the Supreme Cultural Revolution Council, which was led by Khomeini and Khamenei, the next Supreme Leader, the current Supreme Leader, they closed all the universities for three years. Just shut them down. Now part of that and a substantial part of that was to recruit young men to the military to fight against Iraq. 
But when these universities were reopened, strict entrance requirements were established, including religious examinations. And only those who supported the regime were let in. And the Supreme Cultural Revolution Council remains really influential today. It's an agent of elite recruitment, and it is constantly warning of a second cultural revolution to come and the need for this cultural revolution, right? The Supreme Cultural Revolution Council is always issuing Jeremiah about what's going to happen, you know, when young women pull their headscarves towards the middle of their scalp, right? Or wear pants that are revealing or when boys and girls are hanging out after high school together and looking at each other longingly in the public square. Of course, we're going to have to have another cultural revolution. You know, the regime, not without reason, genuinely does fear for its sustainability and its legitimacy. And they do believe, elite leaders in the Iranian regime do believe that the greatest threats to them come from the university kids. And that's part of the reason that veterans and the relatives of participants in the Islamic Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War, they're awarded preferential treatment in university admissions. They're trying to stack the universities with pro-regime youth. Unless you think the purpose of university in Iran is to like, you know, study comparative literature or just like do what you're interested in doing, you know, just hang out and like pursue your curiosities. While there are some people who try to do that there, for the most part, university life is to train a new set of technocrats to staff the ministries, right? And so if you study economics, for example, you take classes called Islamic economics, right? What would the 12th imam do about an economy? And if you study engineering, you're taking classes called Islamic sciences, So while it's not uncommon for governments to dictate curricula, this takes on a rather unique form in an Islamic theocracy. And because the Iranian university system is uniquely oppressive, and because the Iranian university students have been among the squeakiest wheels in Iranian political culture, the Basij militia was established by the Iranian regime. The Basij militia is a paramilitary organization. It's run by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which, of course, in turn, is run by the Supreme Leader. Its motto is the mobilization of the oppressed. They also call themselves the 20 million man army. And this is like a pro-regime organization whose goal it is to monitor the activities of students and of faculty. You know, they go around seeking to engage students in pro-regime activities on university campuses, and high school campuses, and even on middle school campuses. They are, in effect, the morality police. They are, by way of comparison, like Mao's Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution. And they have played a central role in suppressing the Green Revolution, which we'll talk about momentarily. This is an omnipresent 
paramilitary force in educational life in Iran. You can't speak freely in middle school, high school, university. You can't levy serious criticisms against the regime. Someone is literally taking notes. You have to be real careful about what you say and to whom you say it. Which, of course, in my humble opinion, is antithetical to what a world-class education should promote. The marketplace of ideas in Iranian institutions of higher education is stymied by these paramilitary, pro-regime, baby little fascists. And every university student knows that they are under surveillance by their classmates. And this engenders a profound sense of mistrust and mutual suspicion. And in order to understand Iranian political culture, you have to understand that culture of mistrust and mutual suspicion. And of course, the besieged militia see themselves as the vanguards of the revolution. But so does the military. The Iranian military is wicked strong. It's one of the strongest militaries in the neighborhood. You know, Israel, Turkey, Egypt, Iran. And this military creates for a sense of national unity. Right? You have conscription. And Iranian boys go into the military. You know, we've already talked a little bit in this class. It's been in previous podcast lectures as well about the role of the Martyrs Foundation and the myriad ways in which Iranians were affected by the war. And it is in part because of that affection that Iranians have for the revolutionary generation who saved them from Iraq, who saved them from U.S. conspiracies, that Iranians have a certain affection for the military. So in my effort here to walk you through political socialization processes and agents of political socialization in Iran, we talked about the education system, we talked about the military, and of course we have to talk about religion and religious institutions. Now perhaps given that Iran is a theocracy, you think I should have discussed religion as an agent of political socialization first. But by Western standards, yeah, Iranians are religious. But by Islamic standards, Iranians are, perhaps above all else, nationalistic. Moreover, while we do have to talk about religion and religious institutions as you know, separate and distinct entities, it's really hard to when religion fully infiltrates the education system. And religion fully infiltrates the military and paramilitary organizations of the Islamic Republic. But it's also the case that despite this full infiltration of religion into political and cultural life in Iran, religion has arguably played a more divisive role than a unifying role. 
recall that the ulema is decentralized. It's not like the Roman Catholic Church. There is no pope from whom orders come, right? There's a lot of disagreement among the religious clerics. So you have profound strains within the mosques, and you have profound strains between the mosque and the state, despite the fact that 90% of Iranians are Shia. Religion plays a very divisive role. And upon the death of Khomeini and the appointment of, let's say, the less erudite and much less charismatic Khamenei, you have a lot of heated public debates over the roles of religion in Iran. Mosque-state relations are strained. Clerics find the regime to be really intrusive. You know, you always have like these political authorities who are trying to monitor teaching in Islamic seminaries. Despite being a theocracy, relationships between the clerics and the state are terribly uneasy. And on occasion, these strains become public and the media covers them. Iranians are a highly literate country, 97, 98% literate, and they consume mass media voraciously. I want to talk a bit about the role of the mass media as an agent of socialization in Iranian political culture. While it's true that 70 to 80% of Iranians get their news from state-owned media, including, by the way, state-owned blogs and microblogs, which are interesting, you know, the state dominates television, the state dominates radio, the head of radio and television in Iran is appointed directly by the supreme leader. Um, TV and radio are, are actually more conservative in Iran than, than, than the norm. But you do have satellite TV, and of course, more and more you have internet, and you also have this diverse and fascinating print press. So kind of like Russia, right, where the television and radio tend to be dominated by the regime, the newspapers and magazines are more free to investigate and publish. There are boundaries. There are limits. And one of the problems is those boundaries and limits change overnight. So what you wrote safely for the newspaper a couple of weeks ago is now seen as a dangerous affront to the state. So journalists, whether they're print journalists or TV journalists, they have to be careful. Look, we're talking about an autocratic regime here, period. But you have more press freedom in the print press than the radio or television press. You know, but the X factor here is going to be the blogosphere and the microblogs. You know, the internet is dominated in Iran by the youth, and the youth have, you know, a new voice. You know, I commend you to the Snapchat Unveiled series, right, where Persian women were taking pictures of themselves, posting them to Snapchat without a headscarf, just as an example of ways in which the media landscape is changing in Iran and in the rest of the world. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it's still the case that the Iranian regime rules over the lion's share of the media with an iron fist. You know, in families, 
tend to sit down at night and watch TV together. They listen to the radio together. And the family, as is the case in every culture, plays a central role in the political socialization process. I'm fortunate to have a handful of Iranian friends, and all of them have independently reported to me that while the streets of, say, Tehran or the streets of Qom are not safe places to speak freely, behind closed doors and in their homes, Iranians are indeed political animals. They have lively, vibrant, cantankerous conversations about politics. They disagree. They disagree with each other a lot. They do it across they dis they disagree across gender lines. They disagree across generational lines. There's something about Persians and words. I don't know if it's the central role that poetry has played in Persian culture for the last few millennia, but Persians debate. I would say the same of Russians, by the way. And like most Russians, most Persians feel much more safe to engage these debates behind closed doors in their homes. That said, the Iranian family is the primary purveyor of gender roles. And as we'll talk about in this class, gender roles in Iran are particularly problematic, at least to those of us who are feminists and to those of us who hope for equal opportunities and equal dignity for everyone, regardless of gender. And the family is hardly left untouched by the theocratic, autocratic state. There's been a series of family planning campaigns in Iran in the era 1975 to 1980, the average fertility rate was 6.5 kids per family, and the current birth rate is 2 kids per family. So in the Islamic Republic of Iran, the population was curtailed substantially. In fact, Iran emerged as sort of a model for countries that want to lessen the risk of overpopulation. But that's changing. In 2006, shortly after taking office, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said, and I'm quoting here, Westerners have got problems because their population growth is negative. So they're worried and they're afraid that if our population increases, we will triumph over them, which is his way of saying, make lots of babies so we could scare the West, right? And six years later, the supreme leader, Khamenei, he described Iran's contraceptive services as, quote-unquote, wrong and immoral. And since then, Iranian authorities have been slashing birth control programs. Now, I don't know exactly what the 12th imam would have to say about contraception in the 21st century, and I'm not alone in this. This is one of those public divisions between and among the ulema. And it is also a divisive issue between the generations. The younger generation wants to have, you know, one or two kids, sort of a Western standard. And the older generation thinks that Iran needs to engender a population explosion as a way to project Iranian power in the Middle East and around the world. And of course, and obviously, 
this population explosion, should it happen, would have a profound effect on all of society, but on women in particular. And in my effort to try to help us to understand Iranian political culture, let's take a moment to talk about women. You know, like China and like Russia, more like China, Iran is male-dominated from top to bottom. The modulus and the cabinet are comprised by 94% men, 6% women. On the Assembly of Experts, the Guardian Council, and the Expedience Council, we have a grand total of, hold on, let me do the math real quick, zero women. No women on the Assembly of Experts, no women on the Guardian Council, no women on the Expediency Council. Right, even the Guardian Council, right? Women are seen by the Iranian political establishment as the moral vanguard of the country. And the Guardian Council is supposed to be the moral and ethical vanguard of the country, but women aren't allowed on the Guardian Council. Now, when you get down to local politics, women play more of a front seat political role. For example, uh, 29% of the Tehran City Council is comprised of women. I mean, I guess that's worthy of some celebration. And it is true that women play a more influential role in Tehran and in other major cities, though not all of them. But the data on Iranian women is not particularly heartening. With one exception, I should say, uh, more than half of university degrees are earned by women. In fact, 60% of university graduates are women. And in a study by UNESCO, um, more female students are graduating in engineering fields in Iran than any other country in the world per capita. And it's in part for this reason that women are 34% of the workforce, but only 13% of the economy. So look, I try to be without dogma in studying comparative politics. I try to make more empirical than normative statements. But I will tell you that this is one of the hobby horses I've been riding for a long time, and I've never been comfortable on this particular horse. And that is in this effort to answer this question, is multiculturalism bad for women? To put it another way, I mean, am I just supposed to, as an outsider, be like, well, it's just Iranian culture and it's the way they do it there and they just repress women. It's more than just failing them. It's repressing them from cradle to grave. But that's what they do. And, you know, they're an ancient and special culture, so we should respect that. Maybe. But that's really bad for women. And if it's bad for women, it's bad for humans. Because women are humans. That, my friends, is called logic. That said, A, it's not my role to adjudicate these things here, and B, this is more of a question I'm trying to raise than any particular answer I want to pro-offer. Of course, I'm not afraid to tip my hand here by saying that in 2003, when Shirin Abadi, uh, who was Iran's first female judge, uh, when she won the Nobel Peace Prize for a human rights campaign, I literally jumped out of my chair and threw my fist in the air. So maybe I do have some opinions. 
<laughs> but no more opinions on the podcast today. I'll keep the rest of myself. All right, let me jump off of my soapbox here. So we talked about these agents of political socialization, the education system, the military, religious institutions, the mass media, the family, and taking a particular interest in the role of women. And bearing in mind these agents of political socialization, let's pivot here towards a discussion of how elites are recruited into Persian politics. So in trying to understand elite recruitment in Iran, we have to remember that under the Shah, a really small class of educated, secular loyalists filled elite offices. But in the Islamic Republic, the path to political elitism is paved with revolutionary pedigree, kind of independent of class or background. And this results, or at least has resulted, for the most part, in a younger, maybe less cosmopolitan, sometimes more provincial, and certainly a more middle or lower class membership of the political elite. You know, it has to be remembered that the Shah's elites were purged. So the upper echelon, the upper economic echelon of Iranian society was purged from politics by the revolution. And in the Islamic Republic, the proportion of employees in the public sector has increased greatly. I mean, the public sector employees, something like 30%, more, I think, than 30% of the Iranian working population. And part of this has to do with the war efforts. And part of it has to do with the state-led economic development programs. And part of it has to do with this revolutionary agenda to restructure and to Islamicize society from above. But if we really want to understand elite recruitment to politics in Iran, we have to talk about the elite clergy. The elite clergy that are often trained in seminaries like the one in Najaf and in Qom, where Khomeini trained, and in Qom in particular, we have this so-called Haqqani circle. These are like the conservative alumna of the Haqqani seminar at Qom. And this Haqqani circle is influential in the judiciary, it's influential in the Guardian Council, it's very influential in the security apparatus. You know, it's a loose comparison, but it's the Iranian equivalent to Oxbridge, right? A strangely disproportionate number of political elites in the UK went to Oxford or Cambridge and a strangely disproportionate number studied in Combe and became members of this Haqqani circle. Now, the reformist Khatami, he tried to institutionalize political reforms and to encourage active participation by civil society. And the reason he did this was as a means to counterbalance the dominance of the Haqqani circle in Iranian politics, but his efforts were really stymied by Khamenei. So it's indeed the case that like most political elites in Iran, they attended Islamicized universities, they took part in think tanks in places like Najaf and Qom, and they had enrolled in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the besieged militia. And these are ways to get to the top, right? But it's also very important to note that in Iranian politics, 
kinship ties and other forms of clientelism is the path to political power. Marriage, for example, is often used to cement political alliances and to create bonds between prominent political families, even prominent aspiring political families. So when we're thinking about elite recruitment in Iran, we're thinking about the military, we're thinking about the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the besieged militia, we're thinking about the Haqqani Circle and elite clergy training in Najaf and Qom, we're talking about the Martyrs Foundation. And elite leaders in Iran, like elite leaders in all countries, face the vexing task of aggregating the interests of their citizens. And in Iran, this is particularly challenging because politics in Iran is highly fragmented. It's fluid, it's contentious, but it's not fully pluralistic or competitive or democratic. Yet Iranians vociferously articulate their interests, and this starts at the ballot box. Though there is candidate vetting, and we've talked about it and we'll talk about it again, Iranians show up to vote, and that's the primary means in many systems for citizens to articulate their interests. Over the course of the decades of the Iranian regime, 62 to 80 percent have shown up to vote for presidential elections. 42 to 60 percent have shown up to vote for Majil's election. And though it's true that the party system in Iran is sort of weak, we don't have programmatic, centralized, and disciplined parties, we have sort of loosely constructed factions, Iranians show up to vote. And that matters. So if you want to understand Iranian political culture, understand that Iranians vote. And they vote because they feel that they can make a difference. They vote because they care. Say what you will about Iranian politics. But Iranians are 10, 20, or 30% more likely to vote than the average American. Just putting it out there. You know, if we're going to make comparisons in a comparative government class. You know, the other side of that is that maybe Iranians show up to vote much more regularly than Americans do because that's one of the few forms of political participation that's afforded the average Iranian. But you do have institutionalized groups and professional organizations. However, there's not really like a clear separation between interest groups and the government. A lot of associational groups in Iran like groups that represent labor interests or business interests or professional groups, industrial sectors and the like, you know, their voices are pretty much muted, in part because half the economy is centrally planned. So you're not going to have strong unions in that case, at least in an Iranian context. Michael Axworthy, in his book Revolutionary Iran, argues, and I, I know I had plugged Axworthy in another podcast, so I won't do it again here, but it's so good, Axworthy argues that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps controls about a third of the Iranian economy. They do so through subsidiaries and trusts. The Los Angeles Times suggests that the Revolutionary Guard Corps has ties to like hundreds of companies and an annual revenue of 12 billion U.S. dollars. So with that type of government power through groups like the Revolutionary Guard Corps, 
there's not a lot of space created for institutional groups like labor unions or business unions. The government controls just so much of the economy that it makes it hard to have effective, competitive interest group structures. But one interest group, which is sort of a uniquely Iranian interest articulator, is the Bazari Merchants Association. The bazaar in Iran plays a central political and cultural role, and of course, economic role. And the Bazaris have a close relationship with the ulema. You know, we're talking like the bazaar, right? Like the, like the outdoor markets. The merchants who participate in those markets are really well organized. They see each other every day, you know, and they have political and economic interests. And they have a close relationship with the ulema. But the Bazari merchants have been challenged as of late because of the state domination of the economy and also because globalization has really chipped away at the power of small-time merchants. I know that they've come up a couple times already, but the Martyrs Foundation is really important in interest articulation. Right? While some veterans of the war align themselves with the reformists, you know, calling for more participation prospects and for more freedoms, other veterans have accused the regime of abandoning the revolutionary principles that they had fought for. So the Martyrs Foundation has its own divisions, but it seeks to, at the very least, honor the memories of those who died or who continue to suffer because of the war. You know, in most of these so-called martyrs, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s now. They're seeing their stake in Iran fade as younger generations begin to assert themselves. And a lot of what the Martyrs Foundation seeks to do these days is to produce war films and to contribute to ultra-conservative newspapers to make sure that their contributions to modern Iran are honored and valued. But it's increasingly hard for them because Iran has a vibrant protest culture. And even in the 1990s, you had massive protests against privatization policies, the non-payment of government wages to teachers and pensioners, um, just general sort of like protest against unequal wealth distribution, you know, the share of the national cake, you know, the oil revenue wasn't being distributed well. You had protests having to do with ethno-religious discontent, uh, particularly Kurdish discontent. But there's limits to these protests. You know, one of the limits is that you have this pervasive use of patron-client relations and a real lack of trust amongst Iranians. And this makes collective action and alliance building really difficult. And though Iranians are hardly passive, Iranian society seems really unable to unite or somehow to coordinate these disparate groups. Iran is a highly fragmented, highly contentious, highly atomized society. And that's why the Green Movement, building on the energy of the Arab Spring, right? the Green Movement in 2009 was so remarkable. The Green Movement put the limits on public protest to the test. You know, Iranian youth are pushing the boundaries of protest culture. And as so often the case, you are empowered with the choice of how hopeful you want to be for the future 
of the democratic elements of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Hope is a choice. You know, I'm recording this the night before Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, which, as every year, I plan to celebrate. King has left a profound imprint on me. And one of the greatest legacies of King in my life is the legacy of hope. Not foolish hope, not myopic hope, but a robust, profound, empathic hope for your fellow travelers. Look, political culture and socialization, interest articulation and aggregation in Iran is changing. It's in constant motion. Iran has a lively political culture. But Iran is changing through evolution, not revolution. The 1979 revolution was cataclysmic, and it resulted in massive bloodshed in Iran and throughout the region. So as the revolutionary generation pushes past middle age and into a more quiet and contemplative stage of life, we should watch Iran closely and with empathy and with hope to witness the evolution of its political culture. And with that, I bid you farewell, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon.